trying to make it real compared to what I went to a conference and someone proceeds to present slides where passages from my book are paraphrased and they don't give me any credit. I was livid. This was not the first time that my work had been appropriated or plagiarized. This was really kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. I called one of my best friends and I said, you know what I'm gonna do? The next time I go to a conference, I'm gonna make t-shirts that say Sight Black Women, period. And I'm gonna wear them and I wanna see folk look me in my eye and not sight me with these t-shirts on. What began as that proverbial straw became a t-shirt. Now it's a movement. Dr. Kristen Smith, professor of African diaspora studies and anthropology, founder of Hashtag Sight Black Women, this week on The Janice Adams Show. First, the news. Trying to make it real compared to what? Today on The Janice Adams Show, our guest is Dr. Kristen Smith. She's a Stanford University-educated PhD, Associate Professor of African and African Diaspora Studies and Anthropology. She is the founder of Hashtag Sight Black Women. What began trending among black women scholars on Twitter is now a movement that has seized the imaginations and recognized the experience of black women in every field. Why? What happened to her could happen to anyone, literally, especially as African-American women, as other men and women of color, as white women. Isn't that what the wife, Meg Wallitz's book, and Glenn Close's Academy Award-nominated performance are tapping into? Whether at the university level, as a grocery store clerk, a corporate executive up against the glass ceiling, a presidential candidate, what it all boils down to is this. Kristen, I was just blown away when I first saw this hashtag site black women. Oh my goodness, at last. How did you start this? So the story behind site black women is is a really interesting one. It's one that I think that people will resonate with, particularly black women and allies of black women who can identify with this experience. I went to a conference back in 2017, in the fall of 2017. And I'm sitting in the audience and I'm listening to the conference presentations and someone proceeds to present slides where my passages from my book are paraphrased and they don't give me any credit. And as you can imagine, I was livid. I was absolutely livid. And I think this story deserves a bit of background This was not the first time that my work had been appropriated or I had either either been paraphrased or in some other way, shape or form plagiarized. I've had this problem for several years now and I don't wanna go into the specifics about that, but it had happened before. And so this was really kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And I was very, very upset. And I called one of my best friends And I said, and I was just kind of, you know, just sharing because I just needed to kind of release some emotion. And I said, you know what I'm gonna do? The next time I go to a conference, I'm gonna make t-shirts that say Sight Black Women, period. And I'm gonna wear them. And I wanna see folk look me in my eye and not sight me with these t-shirts on. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that was my way of kind of just dealing with a very frustrating situation um, and, and dealing with my emotions. But I actually did it. And so a couple of months later for the National Women's Studies Association meetings in Baltimore, I decided to make the shirts and I decided, okay, I really want to do this project. I really want to make these shirts and I really want them to circulate, but I don't want to kind of benefit financially from that because I just didn't feel comfortable with that. And that has a lot to do with my activist background, et cetera, but we can talk about that at another point. And so I had a good friend and collaborator who I've been working with for quite some time who runs a community school in Brazil named the Winnie Mandela School. And she was coming to the conference and I said, look, I'm gonna sell these shirts and I'm gonna give you the proceeds so you can give it to the kids. 
And that's what I did. And so the first shirts that we sold were at the NWSA in um, November 2017. And I sold out in 24 hours. <laughs> and then I made more shirts for the American Anthropological Association meetings in December of 2017 and also sold out. And after that experience, particularly at the American Anthropological Association meetings, people came to me and said, you know, this has got to be something more than just a shirt. Why don't you do a Twitter account and Instagram and Facebook? Why don't you do something else so we can really start to discuss this as a community? And that's what I did. And so the expansion of the t-shirts into Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram was really a call from the folk that I was engaging with and this community that really kind of came up around this particular, what I call aesthetic intervention, right? Because t-shirts are a way of doing kind of a symbolic protest. And so that's, that's where this all started from. That's where it started. Where is it now? Now we have some very exciting developments. We launched our new website. We launched the site Black Women Collective, which is a group of scholars and people who were in the academy and outside of the academy from varying backgrounds who are now running the project as a collective. And in addition to that, we now have our new podcast. And so that has been just an amazing expansion of the project and is really a reflection of the support that we have on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I think that Twitter in particular, the hashtag movement has really taken off and it seemed like we needed something else. We needed uh, to expand the conversation and really give our followers and those who engage with us more of a platform to be able to interact with. And so the website, which has a blog and has all of our profiles as collective members on it, and then the podcast are ways for us to really kind of expand the conversation. And we have some great things in store. We're a bi-weekly podcast and we're going to be um, featuring some really amazing Black women scholars over the next couple of months that I'm sure everybody will want to tune into. So that's where we are right now. That is fabulous. How do they find the podcast? You just put Sight Black Women into SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, then it should come up without a problem. Good but enough. if you have any problems finding it, our website is sightblackwomencollective.org. Going back to this precursor to December 2017 mm -hmm. and NWSA, when you did decide to do that fabulous T-shirt, which is just great. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't imagine why it sold out so fast as though <laughs> no one related to this problem. In, in fact, I'll tell you, it happened to me, um, not with my scholarly work, but with my newspaper column. You know, we all get these forward, forward, forwards. And I was reading one that sounded awfully familiar. And it, I said, but isn't, wait a minute, isn't this me? And mm. then finally, I looked it up and it was, it was straight away a column that I had written word for word that had gotten forwarded and no one thought to put my name on it or anything else. It happened to me again, a second time. And this time, somewhere along mid forward, someone decided to put Maya Angelou's name on it because they wow. felt like some name should be on it. They didn't know who else to put on, so they put Maya's name. Certainly Maya did not, we actually were good friends, but she did not need or want me to write under her name. <laughs> so it's another kind of violation, right? So. It, it is, you know, but for those people who haven't had the experience who are listening to us right now, what is it that irked you so much? You know, I will tell you what I told, um, what I've told several people, because it really was a painful moment. Um, and like I said, it was a culmination of painful moments. And so I've been talking about citational practices and Black women for quite some time. And the t-shirt idea is from December 2017, but I've been talking about this and talking about it in conversation with different colleagues and friends for many, many years. And obviously the idea that we should be citing Black women is a very basic Black feminist concept that we can trace back to people like Barbara Christian, um, Lynn Bowles, 
and and Barbara Smith and others, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that at that moment, what was really truly painful was to see something that you birthed. And I use the word birth with with real deliberate deliberately because when I write, and I'm I'm sure you you can relate to this. When I write, I really labor my words. I labor my words. I yeah. labor my ideas. I sit with them for years and they are a part of me. And, I sh and, and the process of sharing them with the world is a very deep emotional and spiritual process for me. And to, so to see somebody take that away from me and to not give it, to not make that genealogical connection with the birthing process that I went through in order to, to labor those words was just, it felt like a deep, deep violation of me as a person. And I think that that's something, that's part of the reason why the t-shirts and, and the campaign generally have such resonance with people is because when this happens to you, it hurts and it hurts deeply. And I don't think people really, really truly um, understand what that is um, if they haven't gone through it. But I, I'm sure that people can relate with what that what that must feel like when you if you don't if that's never happened to you. And so you know this sense of deep violation, this sense of of deep disrespect and dismissal, right? Erasure. Um, in addition to all of that, and 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 I think that it's something that's really painful and and something that we haven't talked about enough in terms of our conversations around Black women and violence in particular. Mm. You know, when you say Black women and violence, what I'm hearing is the historical context of it as well, in terms of the violence of enslavement and how people's lives were just dismissed then. So even if I want to dust it off as a writer or dust it off as a scholar, I cannot because that dismissal, that, that violation is so much a part of American history whenever my extended name is mentioned that I can't, I can't dismiss it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, part of the very fundamental notion of the institution of slavery is exploiting somebody's work and taking all the credit. Exactly. And so we have, as Black people, we have been living through this for many, 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 many generations. Mm -hmm. And it it is something that is deeply personal. And it is something that deeply hurts. And I would even say it's an intergenerational trauma because it gets reproduced in these other spheres. And so we can talk about the slavery moment when it's our labor that's being appropriated and we're not getting cited for it, in, so to speak, quote unquote, right? Um, but then you can move on and think about all of the ways that we have worked on scientific projects over the years. Think about Henrietta Lacks, for example. Mm -hmm. Think about the ways that our bodies and our minds and our ideas have been appropriated and then disassociated with us so that uh, somebody else can reap the benefits. Henrietta Lacks, the woman whose DNA was taken and made very, very lucrative for John Hopkins Hospital. And they actually, I've heard some of the doctors later on justify it saying, well, she was a poor woman and she was in our clinic. And so it seemed as though this was a way for her to pay for her hospitalization. I actually did hear someone say it just that way. Wow. And try to justify it as though the amount of money they made was even the equivalent of what the wealthiest person who pays 100 percent ever paid for their hospitalization and care. But there's Henrietta Lacks. There's also Hidden Figures, which people yes. may relate to uh, more because of the movie and how this group of top notch black women coder mathematicians was very much a part of the space movement and very much denied. They were the hidden figures who made that rocket go up in the into the air. So I would just like to add something to that, that I think that part of what makes this movement so important is that it's not just that our ideas are getting appropriated 
or that we are working for other people so that other people can shine, right? So some people, I think the devil's advocate argument for hidden figures was, well, they're working for NASA, it's top secret, we couldn't acknowledge them. But the issue is the following, the issue is there's something very specific about the erasure of black women that literally disassociates us from the capability of producing. And that to me is what the insidiousness of it is. And so for example, it is not simply that these unknown hidden figures were working for NASA and literally responsible for putting us as a country into space. But it is also that black women do not ever get recognized as scientists, as mathematicians, as the authors of our US space program. Mm. When we think about space exploration, we never think about black women. And yet we are the authors behind it. And so there's something about the specific discrimination that black women experience coupled with the erasure of our authorship that is very, very troubling. And we need to really pay attention to it because it has widespread social implications. It has long roots. This year will marks the 400th year since it began on these shores, 1619 to this year, which is when the first documented boatload of Africans was brought to this continent, forced to this continent. It's not the first time black people were on this continent or South American continent, but forced here. Um, and so 400 years should be enough, but here we are still going through it. 400 years has made people think some people want to act as though that's just the way it is and just the way it should be. But I find it interesting that kind of reverberation, almost as though you were in an echo chamber that you described. And then when you put that next to saying how you felt that you were birthing your words and the fact that Black children were not even able to be sacred and part of their Black parents, and that was stripped away. It, it's deep because it, it is a practice that just seems to have no limits and no bounds that, thank goodness, doing something like cite Black women, it may not have had limits, it may not have had bounds, but you are making it have an end. Absolutely. I, I thank you for saying that because I think that, you know, part of the thing that I hope that your listeners can get from this particular part of our conversation is that this is part of a matrix of violence, what Patricia Hill Collins calls a matrix of violence that has been causing trauma for Black women for many, many years. And, and it's tied to other things like the loss of our children that we, you know, we shouldn't downplay and we shouldn't dismiss. And so I think it's really important to, to honor that and to honor people's people's pain and start to try to, to unpack why it is that people feel the way that they feel about issues of appropriation. And what women like you are doing about it through hashtag Sight Black Women. When we come back, more with our guest, Kristen Smith, after the break. With our guest, Kristen Smith. She is Associate Professor of African and African Diasporan Studies and Anthropology at the University of Texas at Austin. She's also our guest today because of her having founded this movement, really, is what it should be called now, called Hashtag Sight Black Women. It is now a social media phenomenon as well as a website 
a collective of black women who have come together to keep it going and a bi-weekly podcast. Kristen, I wanted to ask you in, you know, we use the metaphoric term, but also the historic legacy term, not only from the era of slavery, but straight through segregation and therefore into modern times of the violation that you felt as a scholar, having your name removed from your work or disassociated from your work. And at the same point, I wanted to ask you, using that term violation in the stricter sense, about the hashtag MeToo movement and where that intersection is for you. I'm really glad you asked that question because I think that it's not necessarily obvious to people, but there's a lot of overlap between Me Too and Sight Black Women. Last year, we had the pleasure here at the University of Texas of having Tarana Burke here on campus for a distinguished lecture. And she's an amazing human being and listening to her talk about her experiences and her leadership of the movement was really quite inspirational for everyone involved. Tarana Burke being the actual founder of the Me Too movement, and she is a Black woman, which many people don't realize. Um, To her credit, people were crediting Alyssa Milano, and Alyssa Milano stepped up, the actor Alyssa Milano stepped up and said, no, it's not me. It is Tarana Burke and pointed people in the right direction. So just to identify Tarana Burke. Absolutely. I think that's really important. Definitely. Part of what I think is really a connection between these two moments and movements is the structure of violence that informs both of them. So When we talk about Me Too, we talk about the ways that Black women are not only abused and violated, but the the networks, the enablers, and the structures of power that allow this to happen as well. And one of the things that I have realized and have noticed in my conversations around the country with people as you know, as I'm going around, you know, selling t-shirts and talking about site black women as a project, people tell me their stories. And then I have my own stories alongside it as well. And what I realize is that the, the structure of abuse um, that happens when black women are erased and not cited is very much tied to the very structures of power that also enable black women to be violated in other ways. And what do I mean by that? In essence, oftentimes, Black women are erased from authorship primarily because we are identified as people who don't matter, people who can be violated without consequence, people who nobody thinks about or nobody cares about. And I was really struck. um, I was was watching the Surviving R. Kelly documentary last week along with everybody else it seems like and i was really struck about the conversations that were being had about the network of enablers that allow abuse to happen and i realized that every time somebody steals somebody else's work right so every time somebody appropriates or plagiarizes etc it's usually not just that person that's involved in that violation and so there usually are powerful people who turn a blind eye or allow that to happen or simply go and and say, don't, you know, I realize this happened to you, but why don't you just sweep it under the rug? Don't worry about it. Keep, Keep moving and you'll be all right. Those kinds of conversations happen around the politics of citation. And that that narrative is so eerily similar to the kinds of narratives that happen around abuse, then I think we have to start thinking about what are these connections? So what are the ways that these seemingly mundane and seemingly nonviolent moments of of, a violation of Black women are also really reflective of, of a broader kind of system of patriarchy and what Trudy and Moya Bailey call misogynoir 
that affect Black women's lives in the everyday and mark us as viable. And so to me, that's where these, these movements kind of connect. And I also really make the connection with the trauma. And so the people who I know who have had their work appropriated or erased or ignored are carrying around a lot of trauma. And, and people aren't talking about it. They're, they're, they're hurt. They have a hard time relating to their jobs. Sometimes they stop writing. Sometimes they start stop working in academia. Um, a lot of consequences happen to these, to these moments. And I think that we need to start to think about that and what that means. What does it mean? For me, it means that this erasure is something that is much more insidious than just forgetting to mention somebody's name. Are they forgetting? That's a good point. I, I think that's an excellent point. I don't think they are forgetting. And I think that's the point. I think that traditionally and historically, that's the excuse that's been given. Repeatedly, what ends up happening when people bring these things up is that people say things like, well, no, no, no. I don't really think that they actually copied the work. Or I don't really think that they actually, you know, um, didn't intend to cite you. I think that it was just an accident. So just just let it go. That that conversation happens over and over and over again. And that conversation tends to happen, not exclusively, but quite often from powerful men who are talking to women in positions of less power and trying to sweep these situations under the rug. And I think that we have been treating this as if it were something that's non-consequential. And if we really start to stop and realize that there is a culture, particularly in the academy and, and universities, and I'll speak for that because that's my profession, there's a culture of, there's a Me Too culture um, in universities and in the academy that has been enabling of abuse, meaning there's a, there's a, there's kind of a, a code of not talking about and not punishing those who are abusive in various ways, um, whether that be sexually abusive or physically abusive or emotionally abusive within the academic setting. And in many ways, the citational erasure is really a symptom of this greater problem of a culture of abuse, particularly targeted against Black women within the academy. You know, one of the things that always strikes me is the siloing of some of these issues, when essentially especially as you describe it, it's a continuity. It's a matter of degree. It, just because you are not hitting somebody over the head or, or you know, slapping somebody physically doesn't mean that you're not coming from that mentality. And so you're slapping them intellectually. You're, Absolutely. You know, you're, you're preventing them. And then it's, you, you would speak, better to this. But, you know, if you keep not citing these women, then when they come up for tenure, where are their credits? Absolutely. And I think that that, that is part of the way that this snowballs. It's the snowball effect of it. And so it starts with the not citing or the not mentioning. And then people write papers and articles and dissertations and books based on Black women's ideas, build their careers based on Black women's ideas. And the Black women are then forced to either abandon that original concept and that original idea, or keep writing about it and keep pursuing it, but then being accused themselves <laughs> of doing something too similar to somebody else. Or plagiarizing someone else. Who, or plagiarizing who actually, who actually and use their work as the who basis. is actually plagiarizing them. Absolutely. And, and, and part of the real complexity of it all is that the culture of the academy in particular is that there's it just like, and I, and I can't, I can't help but think about um, Christina Blasey Ford and that whole mm -hmm. incident that we had earlier. The Kavanaugh um, and, hearings. And the Kavanaugh hearings. Absolutely. 
there is a culture of punishing those who speak up. And I think that we have got to really start to pay attention to that. And so part of what is concerning is that there is a matrix within the academy that really, what's the word I'm looking for? It seeks to dissuade those who have been violated from actually um, talking about or pursuing punishment based on the violation that's happened. And that to me is something that we, we also really need to, to, to think about. And so it's not just that people get, it's not just that this is something that affects people in terms of their tenure pursuit. And, and for those that don't necessarily know what tenure is, it's about keeping your job at, the, at a university, right? Um, but also it's about the, the messages that are being sent to these, to these women about whether or not their stories will be believed and whether or not they deserve to be believed or they deserve to be heard. And so it's really very layered and, and painful and complex and has really long-term effects for people that are both psychological and professional. What I was thinking is when you, especially when you mention Christine Blasey Ford, she was heard, she was believed. The thing is that other people who don't understand, don't seem to get what this is about, need to understand, is that it had nothing to do with her. It mm -hmm. had to do, to me, with the privilege accorded him yes. and other men like him yes. who do this on a regular basis and do are not supposed to suffer the consequences because there are no consequences. We have in the White House a man who visibly stalked a woman on stage. I mean, there there we all witnessed it. He the Absolutely. way he he did that slimy stalking of Hillary Clinton on stage in a presidential debate. And not only did he do it, but the moderators, for whatever reason, did not even step in and stop it. And she herself has mentioned that she was reluctant to identify it instead of saying, get off of me, you creep, which I think is, is, the, is the analogy that she gave. Instead of saying something like that, she then was put into the position as a woman running for president who is also a former senator and secretary of state is then put in this position of having to wonder how she will be seen if she is, quote, so aggressive as to <laughs> say to him, no, get away from me. You are behaving like a creep. You know, and that's, that's, it has so many levels and extensions. I think I'd be remiss, though, in this conversation, if I don't ask you, because here I am citing that example of Hillary Clinton during the debates, if I don't ask you to speak to, yes, we know, we, we this happens to black women on a regular basis. But does that mean that it does not happen to black men? Does that mean that it does not happen to white women? And does that mean that, for example, it does not happen to gay people of? No, I think it, it absolutely happens to white women. It happens to black men. It happens across the board. And there's some great hashtags like cite people of color um, and cite women or cite her um, or women know stuff that I think women know stuff and we, women know history um, that I think are great movements as well that are really drawing attention to this. There's, there, there are a number of citational movements on, on social media, et cetera, 
um, that are really trying to draw attention to this issue because it is very widespread. Now, that being said, I think there's something very specific about the way that it impacts Black women. And I think that that has everything to do with this concept of massage noir, as I mentioned earlier, which is a concept that Trudy and Moya Bailey developed to talk about the intersections between misogyny and anti-Blackness, right? So there's something about the way that people do violence against Black women that is very specific. And, and it's not just about intersectionality, but it's a specific kind of intersectionality. And so that, to me, is, is part of the reason why this conversation is really important, right? Because we have to talk about the specificity of Black women, right? And I think that, you know, Black women have been talking about citational politics as well. There's, you know, great movements like Cite Assisted and others um, that talk about Black women's citational politics. But part of the reason why I think that Cite Black Women has been so important to people in terms of this particular movement is the specificity of it, because there is something about really invoking the, the need to cite Black women, period, that does not allow us to avoid the conversation about how Black women's experiences are unique. And to me, that is something that we have got to pay attention to. And I, I've, I've talked to people, particularly in interviews and things, and have said that about Black women. And people have sometimes said, oh, you mean, well, women of color. And that, no, mm -hmm. yes, women of color also have this issue. But Black women in particular have a certain set of issues that we have got to pay attention to specifically. And we must not be afraid of talking about Black women unabashedly. Because that is the way that we begin to actually undo this violence, is by not backing off of the fact that everybody's experiences are unique and there's something that happens to Black women that has everything to do with our history as Black women in this country, has everything to do with the gendered history of racism, the gendered history of anti-Blackness, the gendered history of slavery, that really is something that we have got to parse out from everything else recognizing that all of those wonderful movements that I've mentioned also have a place and must be respected and must be uplifted. When we come back, more with our guest, Kristen Smith, founder of the hashtag Cite Black Women movement, after the break. with our guest, Dr. Kristen Smith. She is an associate professor of African and African Diasporan Studies and Anthropology at the University of Texas at Austin. She is also the founder of Hashtag Cite Black Women. And that's what we've been talking about for these last two segments to kick off this show. But Kristen, I wanna ask you about your personal work and how you came to how you came to your area of scholarship, what really propelled you? Well, I've always been very much interested in the African diaspora for as long as I can remember, um, at least since high school, but I think before that. And um, when I went to graduate school to get my doctorate and was making a decision about what I was gonna focus my field work on, I'm an, I'm an anthropologist by training. Um, I decided that I wanted to do my field work in Brazil because Brazil has the second largest population of African descended people in the world next to the country of Nigeria. And so to me, Brazil had, Brazil had to be a place that I would learn more about. And um, when I got there, I started out looking at black identity in Brazil um, and poetry and theater. 
And when I got there, I found um, that one of the biggest challenges facing the Black community in Brazil is actually police violence, which is something that should be very familiar to people who are familiar with the the challenges that we face as a Black community here in the United States. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Absolutely, Black Lives Matter. And so this was back in 2001 when I first went to Brazil. And I went to Salvador Bahia. And everyone had talked to me about how wonderful it was and how it was this bastion of of Black culture and this kind of beach paradise. And I get there and I'm talking to people from the community and they're talking about this cultural heritage, but they're also talking about the police invading their communities and, and killing people on a regular basis. And so what I wound up writing my book, Afro Paradise, Blackness, Violence, and Performance in Brazil about was the way that one theater group, one street theater group in Brazil used the theater as a space to talk about police violence and also the ongoing collaborations that I've had over the years since 2005 with the campaign, which is react or die in English, a campaign against the genocide of black people that looks specifically at anti-black state violence, um, police violence, and hyper-incarceration and looks to try to undo the insidiousness of these state violences through their activism in communities or through their action and their grassroots organizing in communities. Because they don't use the word activism, so I want to correct that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask you to go into it in great depth for reasons of time, but I am struck by the idea of these behaviors, these cultural, societal behaviors that are being meted out against Black women in Brazil happening at a similar time where we're having the rise of Black solidarity that came together to elect Barack Obama, but at the same point also coalesced a very racist opposition to him, that some of these things that seem to be then mirrored in Brazil where the quote, conservative backlash that we have here is being echoed by the conservative backlash and the election of very conservative racist. Racist, reactionary. Racist, reactionary. um, uh, That's what I want to say. And instead of these code words, because then people will say, well, not everybody who's conservative is racist. No, not everybody is. But what we're talking about is even if you're not do you have a high tolerance for racism? And if you do, that is the behavior that's being addressed. Do you have a high tolerance for racism, for sexism, for homophobia? In that context there, um, looking at these parallel societal behaviors, how do you parse that, you know, as, as a scholar who's actually worked there? Well, I think that what you said earlier is directly on point. And I I can't help but cite and invoke Ida B. Wells in order to make that connection. And that Ida B. Wells was one of the first people, the earliest scholars, or I remember reading, that talked about really the author of the idea that lynching, the lynching era in the United States, was a reaction to Black success. And I think that... What you have in the United States was the rise of Barack Obama and Barack Obama's presidency and that leading to a reactionary, racist and misogynist turn in the United States, the one that we're seeing right now. And what you had in Brazil was Lula and then after that, Joma, who had very progressive um, social welfare programs that under their watch saw an exponential rise in black enrollment in universities and in black people leaving poverty. In addition to things like domestic workers who are majority black in Brazil getting workers' rights where they didn't have workers' rights before. And so both of all of those things together really signaled black success. And the reactionary racism and misogyny that you're seeing and homophobia that you're seeing in Brazil right now very much follows the pattern that Ida B. Wells talked about back in the turn of the 19th century with Black success really fomenting a kind of reactionary anti-Black violence in societies that are prone to white supremacy, that are structured by white supremacy. 
And so there's a reason why we're seeing these parallels is because they are parallel and white supremacy are as diasporic as blackness is. And so these are connections that are not happenstance. They are direct connections. We have to have you back because clearly there's so much more to talk about. And especially <laughs> you. when you have that kind of, you know, conversation, you, you just want to get a greater understanding uh, of, of those parallels because some of the things you mentioned, you know, I had no idea of and, and to hear them discussed that way. But before we go, I want to ask you where you're from and about your family. That's a great question. I grew up in Washington, D.C., although I was born in Philadelphia and my family is from Philadelphia. And for all the Philadelphians out there, you know that most of the Black folk from Philadelphia, or a lot of the Black from, from Philadelphia, are from the Virginia area. So my family is from that corridor between Virginia and Philadelphia. And it, it, I miss it. <laughs> uh, but that is my background. And so, uh, and I think, you know, every time I think about Philadelphia and I think about the work I do, I can't help but remember William Still and the Underground Railroad. And yes. I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, somehow the Philadelphia water kind of fomented that, that desire for Black liberation in me as it does in many of us. I hear that. Kristen, before we close this day, anything that you'd like to mention that I did not get to ask you today? Well, the one thing I'll say is that, you know, the next project that I'm working on looks at the slow and lingering impact of state violence on Black women, and particularly the families and the family members of people killed by police violence. And so for me, it is an extension of my work that I've done in Brazil, but also one of the things that connects the work that I'm doing with Site Black Women with my, with my more mainstream research project, let's say. And so I want people to keep on the lookout for that work. And, and also uh, just generally, I want to just say that please tune into the podcast and continue to follow our work. I really appreciate that. We really appreciate your being our guest today, Dr. Kristen Smith. Looking out on the morning rain, I used to feel so Today on the Janice Adams Show, our guest has been Dr. Kristen Smith. She's Associate Professor of African and African Diaspora Studies and Anthropology. She's the founder of the Hashtag Sight Black Women Movement. That's Hashtag C-I-T-E Black Women. Our thanks to her and to you for joining us today. For links to Dr. Smith and Sight Black Women, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production, Jason Dole. This has been a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. There is only one Aretha Franklin. Bye.